the skill of living is to know how to have the joy of Christ separate from the joy of Christ's things. Christian things, creation, it's not the same as having the joy of Christ. I'm going to ask you turning the Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. As we begin or continue our study, looking at verses 15 uh, through 20, this is uh, what many scholars believe a Christian hymn uh, reflecting Christ, perhaps maybe uh, one of the beginning Christmas carols uh, celebrating Jesus Christ. And so it's uh, fitting uh, that we look at this passage I was thinking about the Luke 2 story, you know, the angels and shepherds and, and Bethlehem. And scripture says that as these angels announce to the shepherds what they'll find, a, a babe wrapped in swallowing clothes lying in a manger, this will be a sign. You'll see these things. This is the Christ child. We're talking about the blessing of mankind because of this. And, and the angels announcing this and this, this joy to the to the world kind of hymn going on. And, and the shepherds running uh, to meet Joseph and Mary. And the Bible says that Joseph and Mary, as they were hearing the things that the angels or the shepherds said and what they encouraged them, that she pondered all these things. And in other words, she gathered all these little nuggets of information and she treasured them, put them together in her heart with already the, what she had, the announcement of, of the angel to her. The fact that... Uh, baby's born and there is no prior relationship with joseph uh, to produce that and then everyone else in bethlehem was wondering about these things but she was pondering ever wondered what they wondered what did they ponder well i think what mary pondered what the people of bethlehem wondered is made clear to us in colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through 20 this is not just a baby this is a significant person. And verses 15 through 20 is probably one of the most concise, power-packed verses to declare who Jesus is. He says, this is who's been born. And so we've looked already at verse 15 and 16. And this morning we're going to look specifically at verse 17 and 18, which is a little bit of a transition in this, this stanza. And so this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this. This, this Jesus, this one who has forgiven us, who's transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus. Who is this? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent you may be seated verse 15 to 16 if you were to generalize it, it is about Jesus and his relationship to creation. 17 is a summary of that. And verses 18 through 20 
is Jesus in relationship to his new creation. And so that's one way to, to look at that. It is so important for us to know who we celebrate. You know the song, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen? Uh, I learned this, uh, Julie was telling me about this as she was preparing for one of her Sunday school lessons. Um, it is perhaps one of the oldest carols we have in existence. Uh, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that phrasing, merry gentlemen. Not many of us want to be merry gentlemen. Uh, It's not something we aspire to. Uh, But it's actually an old English word. Now, we understand one meaning of the word merry is the happy, joyful time, uh, like we, we say merry Christmas. But the old English definition of the word also is mighty, mighty, such as uh, Robin Hood and his, yeah, because merry men, you know, it's not really fear producing. Uh, merry men, mighty men. So when we look at God rest ye merry gentlemen, uh, he's actually talking about mighty gentlemen. It was, it was done, uh, tradition tells us that it was sung by watchmen, city watchmen, as they sang it out to the gentry of the city, and, and this was extra money to be able to sing. And so just... Think about that and and listen to the lyrics now, knowing a little bit more about it. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were going astray. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy goes on, says in Bethlehem in Israel, this blessed babe was born and laid within a manger upon this blessed morn, to which his mother Mary did nothing taken scorn. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. It's, it's the, the, the sound of a watchman encouraging the people who may be in fear. They want to hear, what does the watchman say? The watchman is saying, don't be afraid. Mighty people. Of green pines. Christ our Savior was born to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Now, why does that make a difference? Because we have just read in Colossians 1, verse 16, who is this that's born? Who is this that is Christ who has forgiven us? Who is it that we are now in his kingdom? He is the one who is. Uh, all things for whom all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So all spiritual powers, including Satan himself, is ultimately destined to glorify God. Wow. So when Jesus is born, it is making evident the power of God that there is nothing in this world that is greater than who is in you in jesus christ which is why paul says uh nothing can separate us from the love that's in christ jesus that's why john can say greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world all right so think about the songs we sing this time of year i have a i have a general rule uh when it's christmas time oh thanksgiving time we're not singing christmas songs but once thanksgiving hits Let's 
think about the Christmas songs and someone asked me, well, do you stop in January? I said, no, you can keep on listening to them as long as you want until it comes Thanksgiving time. All right. So just the songs that we sing are packed with truth. I'm talking about Christian songs, right? We're talking about Santa Claus, Mama Saw, Kissing the Kennel Saw. All right, we're not talking about that, but all right, the, the, the Christmas carols are filled with truths about who God is and incarnation and, and what we have in Christ. And so, I, Paul is, is writing this. You remember where he's writing from? He's writing from prison. He's writing from prison. He's writing to people he's not yet met who are starting to uh, drift away because of other things being taught. And he's telling them, I'm praying for you. If you read that first prayer in chapter 1, I'm praying that you will be filled with God's will, that, that God's will will control you, that you may be pleasing to the Lord. And then he says, I'm praying that you will be, in verse 11, strengthened with all power, resurrection power, Christ power, be strengthened so that you will endure, have patience, and do it with joy. All right? So let's do that. Let's think about who Christ is. So, verse 17 is a summary of all of 15 and 16. Simply, uh, we are lifting up Christ from the mass. The masses of everything. Events, joys, delights, crowds of people, your calendar, okay? Your hobbies, your work, your money, your wealth, your life in its entirety. Lifting up Christ from the mass of all that is around us. Why are we lifting him up? One, simply because he was here before the mass all right he was here before the mass and so it's stated very clearly in verse 17 he is before all things and that word seems to have more of a time-oriented aspect uh simply put whoever's here first has rights all right we uh our table for breakfast it used to be that it would be fought upon where people were sitting except for mom and dad because you know we declared it uh, this is where we're sitting. And so that, that would be a constant fight. Where are we going to sit? And so we simply made a rule. All right, well, here's the deal. When it's breakfast time, whoever is dressed and ready to roll here at the table first gets the seat. And so it made it very clear. And so what we have here is Scripture saying, Jesus is here before you. <laughs> Jesus is here before your family. Jesus is here before the church. Jesus is here before the rock. Jesus is here before the sea, before the trees, before all things that seem to clamor for our our attention. Think about it. When you go home, what's going to clamor for your attention? Food, all right? Lunch, your children. If you want to watch football, football will clamor for your attention. And then the myriads of commercials that you will be exposed to within three hours of leaving here. All saying, invest in me, invest in me, invest in me. All these things clamoring for our attention. Maybe it's the next Sunday school party or the next social gathering that we've got. We've got all these things. Jesus is before any of that. And so, everything belongs to him by right. By primacy. He was here first, all right? Uh, so, Micah 5, 2. This is one of the prophecies we talk about. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient 
days. And so when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2 says, you see a babe that was here just for a few hours. But understand, Mary, if you read your Bible, if you read Micah and you ponder this, you're going to realize that what you have in front of you, though just a day, is from old, from ancient of days. And Colossians completes this to say, he's not just really old. He is before anything that has come to be. John 1, 1 says it like this. In the beginning was the word. How do you have something in past tense at the beginning? In the beginning was the word. So at the very start, Jesus has already been. Uh, and so he's here first. Hey, every once in a while you come across some, some uh, uh, I'll, I'll say, old codgers. And this is how you know. And, and I'm going to say I'm, I'm one of them, all right, because I've made statements like this. This is how you know. When they say to someone younger, I have a piece of garment older than you. And I've said that before now, you know, and I've had it said to me, all right. It is a, it's a belittling, isn't it? And, and now I totally realize, one, I don't need to buy clothes anymore. Uh, I've got enough to supply uh, and then, and then they last and I have now children and others that are much younger than shirts and other things that I have even socks. All right. Uh, and so here, this is a statement we use from time to time. Uh, and, and here is Jesus saying, you know what? I am much, much older than you. And, and there should be a belittling aspect to say, be filled with God's will. He has socks older than you. All right. He has be filled with him, he knows more about your life than you do. And so we lift up Christ from the Mass because he is here before the Mass. John 8, Jesus is, is having a confrontation with some of the religious leaders and they're talking about Abraham and, and they're asking him, are you older than Abraham? I mean, you're in your 30s. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, but before Abraham was, I am. Isn't it amazing? How did Jesus know that? Because God is in him. He is the fullness of God. And it had come to his, his, his thought that, you know, I am God in flesh. And now I can say this. And he did it at his own peril. I tell you, if you're going to say that to Orthodox Jews, be prepared to have your life killed. And they tried. But the power of God prevailed. So we lift up Christ from the mass because he's before the mass secondly as we read this it says not only is he before all things in him all things hold together we lift christ from the mass because he upholds the mass he is the reason that everything is in existence even today we're not serving a, a, a deistic God who just set things in motion like a clock and says, oh, okay, I've got better things to do and let them go. Do you understand that not only did God create you, create the world and all things around you, he is upholding him, yourself even at this moment. He didn't just set the things in motion and run away. Scientists still, when they're trying to study how it is that cells and atoms keep their cohesiveness together with centripetal force and, 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 and protons and neutrons moving around with positive and negative charges. And they're trying to figure, it doesn't make sense that how these things are whole, held together scientifically. We can't quite get it. And Jesus says, I hold 
all things together. The very molecular structure of who you are is in existence because Jesus is holding it together. That's why we never run out of God's grace. God's grace is not finished. The fact that I'm still breathing is God's grace still upholding me even now. And so we lift up Christ from the mass because he is the one that is holding the mass together. Now, as we move to verse verse 18, all things that we've talked about up to this point is about creation. Jesus' relationship to creation. Now, verse 18, he's going to talk about a new creation. A new creation. So, verse 18. We lift Christ from the mass because he is the source of the new mass. God is working even now to make a new creation. We, we have um, all kinds of stories that kind of capture this. I think there's something innate in us that we want something new. Right? I mean, how else do you explain the every 12 to 18 month cycle of smartphones and computers and everything else? We always want something new. And, you know, you remember the, the, was it the $6 million man? <laughs> yeah. He's all broken. We're going to build him bigger and better and faster. And, and we're going to use technology and mechanics to make this $6 million man that, that is greater than he was before and, and so today and it was as we look at movies and things like that it, it's some of the same ideas that no longer they do technology it's it's some kind of genetic code and and creating x-men the next step in the evolution and and so they they have all these these uh theories and there's something about it that captures us like yeah i'd like to think that we're getting better i want to be a better man i want to be a better woman let's produce better children healthier smarter stronger and so we're always working toward that end the problem is is the answer is never found in technology the answer is not found in our genetic code the answer is not found in education or uh sports uh that we're trying to do it's not going to be found in our food it's found in jesus it's found in christ you see verse 18 it says he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead let's talk about what that means so first the church the church is a whole new body of people nothing like it had existed prior to the church prior to the holy spirit coming in filling god's people i don't know what you think about when you think of church some people think of it as uh, as well some kind of uh, religious country club that exists for the benefits of its members. Is that how you think about church? A religious country club that exists for the benefits of its members? That's not church. That's not what the Bible teaches. And then there are, are some that have a, another idea about it. Perhaps maybe a collection of emotional misfits that are waiting for the first bus to glory. Maybe, maybe, would give us good reason to think things like that. The Bible uses different terminologies for the church. There's, there's things like fellowship, family, flock, but the body is the best. 
In fact, the terminology membership can really only be applied to a body. If you think about it. It doesn't make sense applied to any club unless it applies to a body. The church is God's idea. It's His. It belongs to Him. And so for those of us who says, you know, it's just a spiritual thing, me and, and Jesus, church, they're a bunch of misfits. I could be better without them. You just are running against the thought of Christ and the work of Christ throughout history. He is the head of the body. He is the source, the director, the strength. I was talking with uh, Jose while I was spending uh, this past week. We were in classes together. Uh, it was provided for us. And so we, we spent a lot of time, uh, our, our, the pastor of the Iglesia Baptista here. Um, and so he and I were talking one day. And we were just talking about growing up and foods he had. You know, he grew up in, in Mexico. And uh, many of you uh, probably have similar experiences if you grew up on a farm. I, I remember my parents and grandparents telling me about this, of, of the chicken. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Those of you who grew up, you know. You, you, you cut the, the head off the chicken in preparation for your lunch. <laughs> and, uh, and the crazy chicken keeps running and jumping without a head. That, that just fanatic, frenetic pace of a headless chicken going anywhere. And I was thinking about that. I said, well, I guess if it runs into a wall, it doesn't hurt. Because how would it know? Ow. It was just... It's just, it keeps on running without any direction. And it's a mess. Things without a head, bodies without a head are not a good thing. All right, simple. Churches without a head is not a church. Who we are flows from Jesus, is directed by Jesus. So let me ask you, church, are you in connection to the head? Are you connected to Jesus? Are you abiding in the Spirit of Christ? Are you seeking His ways, seeking His Spirit? And there's a simple little measurement here. Are you praying? If we're not praying, we're cutting the head off from us. And the end is going to be like that headless chicken. He is the source, the head of the church. It's for this reason, I, I, I want to propose something. There's a couple of things I'm praying for and I've called some people to pray for in our church that involves our whole church. One is about adopting a people group. A couple Wednesday nights, I was able to share with our church, those who came for our supper, about a place called Puga, working with Jeremy and Trisha and where they're at, and some of our members in East Asia, and the appeal uh, for us to adopt that people that live there. That is a step that should be directed by the head, Jesus. Therefore, we ought to pray about it. And seek the direction. The other thing I have I brought to our attention is, what about elders? The Bible seems to be teaching about elders. They don't seem to be evident in our body. Perhaps maybe we need to reevaluate and redo. And I've asked us simply to pray about that. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do on January 1st new year I'm gonna set aside that day For fasting and prayer for god's working in 2014 I think for two things one to thank god for his working in 2013 To thank him it you know it's right for us to take adequate time to thank god For all that he's done in the past year But it's certainly seek the head's direction for 2014 i'm going to ask that you join me in prayer 2014 uh new year's day is a wednesday and so wednesday night uh we're not doing our normal activities as far as the children but we are calling people to pray and to gather together i can think of nothing better than the first day of that first year to pray uh and so we're going to do that uh, anyone who would wish to can come and join us on that new year's day 2014 here as we join in prayer that's something we do as a church because he is the head. And so the idea here is not just direction, but source of energy. There's the idea of flow that comes from a head, isn't there? So what Jesus is, is bringing to us is there's a new way of living. This is the $6 million man, all right? This is, this is the next step of the, the so-called evolution, so to speak. Not, not Darwin's theory, but what God is doing and a new creation. And it starts on the inside in your spirit. And it flows from Jesus. Alright? When we talk about being filled with the Spirit, this is God's process in changing us from the inside out to bring salvation to us. And so, notice what it says next. He says He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That firstborn, we looked at it last Sunday, is not just in order, but in prominence. We talked about firstborn creation. We looked at how that wasn't saying that Jesus was created, but that he is the inheritor of creation. He is the prominent one. We looked at Psalm 89, how throughout the Old Testament, the, the firstborn uh, has that significant meaning of, of being an inheritor. Okay, And so Jesus is the inheritor from the dead of the resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, now, let's talk about it. Was Jesus the first one to come back from life? Well, if you believe the Bible, the answer is no. There are quite a few. In fact, Jesus was involved in Lazarus' resurrection. Uh, You see this even with the Old Testament prophets, that this happened. But here's the difference, all right? All those people prior to Jesus were just more or less resuscitated, all right? Yeah, okay, their heart stopped beating, even for Lazarus' case, three days, But when they came back to life, did they die again? Yeah, in some ways they kind of got it bad. Because to the best of my knowledge, Lazarus is still not walking around here. He died. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, did not go back to death. It was a resurrection not a resuscitation death has no longer any grips upon jesus and therefore the scripture says he is the firstborn from the dead from jesus now is this new type of resurrection not a resurrection of say okay i'm going to come back from the dead to only die again but now the resurrection given to those who are in jesus christ is one where death no longer has a sting No longer has the victory. 
there is a resurrection that no longer has death at the end of it. And that is the source of life in Jesus. And so he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Hebrew chapter 2, verse 14 to 16 says it like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Wow. So when we talk about Jesus being born, it was the first step. He had to be born in order to physically die. And he had to physically die to defeat death and let the life of God come through in the resurrection. So when we talk about Christmas, we're talking about Jesus' strategy in defeating Satan in our life. And that is a good thing. So I've shared this before. If you long for life when you die physically, you long for resurrection, you won't hope then. I'm going to share with you that that same power is the Spirit of God. If we want to be filled with the Spirit of God when we physically die, what about having the Spirit of God reign in our life when our heart's still beating? What about that? Everybody wants the assurance of heaven when they die. But how is it we don't want the assurance of heaven in our life now? The Spirit of God is given as a, a deposit, an earnest of things to come. It is meant to, to prove to us there is more to come. But why is it that we relegate the Holy Spirit to things that, you know what, I don't really care about what God wants me to do. I don't want to be filled with God's will. I'm waiting for better, more palatable options for me in this week. And it's only when we're dying and there is no other future options that we say, you know what, I really want God's assurance now. Does anybody see any consistency with that? The Spirit of God is the life of Christ given to us now. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. Paul is writing this because he's praying that they will be strengthened. In verse 11, that they will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so how do you have endurance? How do you have patience? How do you have joy? It is having the life of Christ and you just need to know who Christ is. So that he squashes every competing will. And he is glorified in that. Notice what it says. He's the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. So this past week the news was very much about Nelson Mandela and his death. And all the things that he brought of value to South Africa as well as to the world. And there were very valuable things that he brought. But every once in a while, I, I saw people make mention of this. And I, I remember this because I had a conversation with a, a South African one time. And it's funny how his view was a little bit different. Because not only was it the good things, but he also had memories of bad things. Nelson Mandela's involvement, and every human will have bad things of his involvement and planning and, and some, some terrorist acts. 
I'm, you know, it's funny how you, the, the media just puts what they want to put up. Because, I mean, after someone dies, you don't really want to talk about all the bad things of a person. But all the while, you're wondering, is he really worthy of all the praise and adulation that's coming? Maybe he's one of the better ones of America, or better ones of human race, and that he overcomes some things. But he's no Jesus. And every human ruler is going to pale in comparison to Jesus. C.S. Lewis once stated it as this way. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked him, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Mohammed and said, are you Allah? He first would have torn his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think you'd probably apply remarks which are not in accordance with nature or in bad taste. There's only one who claims that he's both God and man. It's the name the shepherds whispered when they gathered around a baby in Bethlehem. Emmanuel, God, with us. His name is Jesus. Jesus came not to be merely imminent in your life. He came not to be merely an influencer. He came not to be just a model of good. Yes, Nelson Mandela came from prison with forgiveness and brought him to power. Jesus came as God. And man crucified him. And God, being crucified, said from the very cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And they're placed in the tomb and rose again. Is Jesus just imminent in your mind, in your heart, in your life? So, well, who's the biggest influence? Oh, Jesus, of course. What's the best book you've read? Well, the Bible, of course. But is Jesus reigning? When you sense the scriptures say, do this. When you sense Jesus say, do this. The question of whether he's preeminent or imminent is answered at that point. I don't know. It doesn't sound like a good idea, Jesus. He's not preeminent. I don't know, Jesus. That would cost me too much. He's not preeminent. I don't really have the time for that, Jesus. He's not preeminent. That hurts too much, Jesus. He's not preeminent. I don't really have hope of that working, Jesus. He's not preeminent. Listen very carefully to how you answer when Jesus tells you this is what a follower does. He's not to be imminent. 
He is to be preeminent in all of life. And the fact of the matter simply is, is that whether we like it or not, he will be preeminent. So why don't we go ahead and get ahead of the curve? And let's declare his preeminence in everything at this time. At this time, I'm going to ask that we we pray. And let's just do it with a prayer. As verse 18 ends, Jesus, in everything, might you be preeminent. We want you to be preeminent. Let's pray.